I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello there. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I am your host, Effie Parks. Have you found any rare disease heroes yet? I've had dozens of them on the show. Each and every one of them have a vital piece of this puzzle. Today's episode is coming at you with two of the top two parent leaders in the advocacy game, and they're here to give us all a free masterclass in building your own rare disease patient advocacy group. Because these two have so much important knowledge to lay down, the format's going to be a little different today. For the most part, all I'm here to do is give them a platform to educate us and get out of the way. I'm merely a conduit for this priceless transmission of expertise and experience. But don't worry. You won't have to take notes. I've already got you covered. Trust me, you do not want to be trying to take notes as fast as Mike can talk. You'll see what I mean. All of the important bullet points are on my website and in the show notes for you to refer to at your leisure. Big show here today, so let's just get started. Please welcome my guests, the gurus, Fox G1 and Syngap1 Trailblazers, Nasha Fitter and Mike Gralia. For those of you that don't know my guests today, they've both been on the show before. They both did a fantastic job, and that's why they're back today. It sounds like they actually did maybe too good of a job. So I'm having them back so we can just do a comprehensive run through. They're leaders in the rare disease community. They talked a lot about some of the stuff we're going to bring up today, but we're going to kind of organize it for you, answer a lot of your questions, and we're just going to lay it out into a guide. So let's get moving because there's a lot of stuff to talk about. Mike, Nasha, my goodness. Let's start at the beginning. Number one, guys, we're talking about building your teams. We're talking about people who are deciding to do something for their rare disease or their kid's rare disease or whatever, starting from the ground up. What do we do? So the first thing to do is to build your team. So if you've just been diagnosed and you're looking for a rare disease group and you've realized there isn't one, I think the very first thing to do is to realize that this myth that Mike is single-handedly doing Syngap1 or that Nasha is single-handedly doing FoxG1 is bogus. Like we are only doing it because we have a team of parents who work with us closely and you need to you need to recognize that on day one and you need to build your team. And it needs to be any other parents who are diagnosed should be, you know, reached out to and connected with. But also, you know, by definition, going after a rare disease when you're a rare disease parent who wasn't a scientist before you were diagnosed is bananas. And so to suggest that you're going to take care of a kid with a rare disease and hold down your day job and run your family and manage an organizational cure disease by yourself is just ludicrous. And so 
don't be afraid of reaching out to friends and family. Like there's people out there without rare disease kids who actually are looking for a cause. And I would just recruit aggressively. So step one for me, if you're if you're beginning this journey, is to build your team and invite everybody and anybody, other families, and then your friends and your family and your network to join you on this adventure. That's the top of my list is to build your team. Nasha's going to now say something smarter. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is not step number one. Totally agree. Build your team. I think step number two is build your scientific advisory board. Like Mike said, you can't do this alone, and this is complicated stuff. You're basically curing a disease that most people will never have heard of, let alone know how to tackle it. So as you do all of the rest of the steps, you need to have scientists that you could trust, that you could go to for advice. Am I doing the right thing? Is this the right project to fund? And building that board is really critical. And you do this with who you have accessible to you. So. Do you know someone who works at a biotech company that you could reach out to to be on your board? Is your child's doctor potentially someone you could have on your board as a clinician or your child's genetic counselor, geneticist, etc.? Or just go ahead and reach out to folks that you have heard are, you know, well known in your field. You'll be surprised how many people will agree to help you, especially if you can act professional and make it clear that you're not here to waste their time. You're going to utilize their time in a very efficient way to help solve this condition. So step number two, build your scientific advisory board. Okay. So I think most people can understand how you can build your team with your parents, your friends, your family, and all those people by reaching out on social media and everything. But a lot of people coming to the table are mere mortals and maybe don't have a lot of experience in anything, obviously, in rare disease. But are there any tricks or kind of backdoor ways that you would say that you could contact these people? I mean, how do they make these connections with scientists from around the world? How do they open that door? Do they go to LinkedIn? Do they ask people in the community for emails? Like, how do they do that? That sounds intimidating for a lot of people who are just like coming up for some air. Yeah, I know you're, you're totally right on that. And you have to approach this like an entrepreneur. So an entrepreneur basically tries to do a lot with very little resources and knowledge. And that's basically what has happened to you. You are an entrepreneur now. And so with building the SAB, you know, our first few members were my child's genetic counselor, a friend of a friend who was a neurobiologist. So our initial SAB was really just people I knew. And then going back to what Mike said, you're building a team, right? So then one of the parents on our team, her neurologist, who's a leading neurologist, agreed to be on our SAB. And then we consulted with him, who else should be on the SAB? And he reached out to a leading gene therapist, for example, and invited them to our SAB. So after you get the first one or two people, they will actually help you get more people and you can go to them. The other thing with the SAB is to make sure that you have folks covered in every category. So a clinician, a geneticist, someone in the biotech in industry, someone who works on translational therapy. And again, once you build the first couple people, they can help you think through who else should be on the SAB. Another important point I'll just say is it's not that you have to have like monthly meetings with your SAB. It's not like that. It's more of a group that you could tap at different times based on the question that you need answered. And then what I do is we just send like a monthly or sometimes it's even quarterly update to the SAB on here we are. So th those are just some some ways that you can think about uh, building that board. Okay, cool. 
Mike, I know out of pretty much everyone on social media that I follow, you're in my face all the time. And it's because you are everywhere all the time telling people what to do and how to do it. You've started a 10-minute weekly podcast. So you are very, very good at engaging everyone online and I think getting them excited. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's definitely number three. You need to engage parents because if you're going to lead this organization, you're going to spend a lot of your time thinking about this. And what I forgot for the first couple of years was that most people aren't thinking about this all day, every day. Most people are doing day jobs and barely paying attention and, and aren't tracking the science. So there's two thoughts here. One of them is you gotta, you've got to repeat your message again and again and get in people's face. And the other is, and this is my story on, on, on engagement and on building a patient advocacy group. When I started this, I thought we were building a speedboat and racing across the lake to a cure, right? We, we had to just get, get to a cure fast. And I've totally changed my model there. I realized that's crazy. If, if it was that simple, somebody would have done it. And now my model is we're building a lighthouse, right? We're trying to get the researchers, the clinicians, the diagnosed families, the undiagnosed families, the other companies in the space. We're trying to get all these people to gather around and think about our gene. And so the way I think about everything we do, our newsletter, our podcast, our Facebook group, our Twitter, our blah, 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 blah. All this stuff is like a digital lighthouse and I'm just sending out a signal every week. Hey, Syngap One, we're here, we're here, we're here. I mean, I'm happy to double click on this. We could, I could spend the whole rest of our time talking about the different things we did. But what I would say is get on message, get on every single platform and engage your, your patients. And, and for me, the, the win inspired Effie by you and Bo really was the podcast. Like that 10 minutes I do every week. At first I was like, well, whatever, let's see what happens. And then randomly I talked to parents and I even talked to a company once and they were like, yeah, we were getting ready for this meeting. We found your podcast. We listened to four episodes and now we're kind of in your head. And I was like, that's amazing. I didn't think anyone was actually listening. And so for me, this, the, the podcast and the, and the newsletter and the Facebook has been so helpful in terms of letting people know and people are watching. That's, that's the point, you know, build the lighthouse, trust people are paying attention and that way they'll be ready and you don't have to repeat yourself when you meet a new family. So really it's all digital. And the other point, it's a sad truth that rare parents are isolated, right? We're taking care of sick kids all day long. Our kids wake up at weird hours of the night. Sometimes we're up at 4am and we can't go back to sleep because we just got kicked in the head by a kid or a kid just had a seizure or whatever. And some, so you're sitting there at 4am, what do you do? And, and you open your phone. That's what people do. And if there's newsletters and there's podcasts and there's things there that they can listen to when they're lying next to their sick kid and they can't sleep, they're going to listen to them and they're going to read them because that's top of mind because their kid is sick. So I, I would um, invent, don't neglect digital, right? Really, and don't assume people are reading. I spent way too much time in the first couple of years writing really well edited, thoughtful blogs that I'm pretty sure no one read, right? Whereas the podcast and the and the quick Facebook posts, everyone reads those. So I would invest in digital and I would just make sure that you're you're constantly pumping it out. And then, then there's a whole conversation about the most useful way to do that. Invest in that. Oh my gosh. I love that you changed directions like that. And I love the term digital lighthouse. That's so cool. And it is, it's you engage people who aren't Syngapians, right? Like I'm obsessed with your posts. I share them no matter what, because they are, they're so engaging, they're so informative, they're so bite-sized, which is something that families like ours needs too, right? Like we don't have a bunch of time to do a lot of things. So I love that you shortened that down. And I think that your social media is a, a beacon. Yes, for sure. And that everyone should kind of go and copy you. So follow both of these shows for sure. Nasha, what's next? 
All right, next on this list is build a registry. And so what do we mean by that? So as you know, Mike pointed out, step number one was build your team, get to know the other parents in your community. And that can be done in many ways. And you know, for many of our groups, we have a Facebook group. Um, most groups have maybe multiple Facebook groups. If you don't have a Facebook group, you wanna start that definitely. It's a great way to connect with parents or other patients around the world. And there's other platforms too that you can choose, other social platforms just to connect with parents. And then what you may wanna do is just start a list of who are all the patients in your community. But you can't really do much with that list. What you need is a registry platform and this means that it's a legal entity, a legal structure that you are able to collect patient information. And the reason to collect patient information is that if you're a rare disease, nobody understands your disease. I mean, the best clinician for your disease in the world will only have a small fraction of what this disease actually is. So it unfortunately falls upon the advocacy group to really build what the disease looks like. What are the symptoms our patients are going through? So in order to do that, there's many registry platforms out there. You know, you can talk to uh, folks in the rare disease community for different suggestions, but you want to get it to be IRB approved. And that basically means that there's a consent that patients or caregivers are signing to say, hi, my name is this and I am consenting to be on the platform. Then you can really count them as a patient that you could share information with to researchers, et cetera. After that, after you, after you start, you know, you get a platform, you can go out on your social media platforms and then ask parents, patients, caregivers to come and join the platform and explain the benefit that we can all start learning from one another. And some of the very important things you can do is you can have surveys that you put on that platform to figure out what patients are going through. You can start collecting genetic um, testing reports and understand the mutations. That's really important to start to know if you have a gene or multiple genes that have been affected or altered, you know, different patients are going to have different types of genetic mutations. And you want to get to the point that you know what those mutations are and you can start connecting those mutations with symptoms that patients are having. So all of this starts with getting a registry set up. And um, the earlier you do this, the, the better it's going to be. Okay. So people need to ask around and find which platform fits them best. And then they have to engage with their community to have everyone submit everything. Have you found that difficult trying to get this information from families and parents? Any incentives that you've had them do it quicker? Are people not responding to call outs like that? How do you get all of that stuff as soon as possible? Yeah. And you know, you're not going to get everyone right. And Mike, Mike can talk about this too, but we, we both go through this with our communities. If you can get even 10%, that's a great start. And every year you set goals. All right, next year we're gonna to try to get to 15%, then we're gonna to get to 20%. And we treat it like a business. So we know when there's a new patient because they'll tend to join the Facebook group, their families will. And then we kind of break out who are these patients in different parts of the world. And going back to the first point Mike brought up, build your team, you can then have caregivers in different parts of the world start contacting those families to say, hey, do you know about this registry? Why don't you join? And they can contact them through social media like Facebook Messenger or email if we've been able to get their emails, WhatsApp, et cetera. There's ways that you can find to try to get into each of these um, families and to explain the benefit. And again, you're not gonna win everyone and you do the best you can. And every year it will get better and word of mouth will spread um, and you will get there. 
Mm, I love that. Breaking it down into goals and running it like a business. And yeah, finding point people, right? Like find your fans, find your people who are active and delegate. Have other people helping to recruit so you're not trying to do everything in this super crazy fast speeding boat that's probably going to roll over. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. So you have 10% at least of your group and you've got your platform and stuff is getting submitted. Where's the next step? So the next step is is a natural history study. And, and I think it's important to distinguish between a registry and a natural history study. And as usual, I want to make like three points at once. The first point is when you start this, you have this mindset of, I have one of 10 kids in the world with this crazy rare disease. And oh my God, there's so few of us. And then you start working and you look up and there's 50 kids. And then you keep working and suddenly you've lost track of the kids. There's like 150 kids. And you're like, oh my God, I can't even remember them all anymore. And, and that's exactly what happened with Syngap. When I started this work, I kind of had a mental map of everyone in the US. And now I, I, I'm constantly referring to a spreadsheet. And so the point I'm making here is even if it feels rare at the beginning, it's rare because diagnosis is a problem. It might not be that there's not no patients out there. It's just that you haven't found them. So I would prepare to do this at scale. And so the registry is important to just have a list. I can't tell you how many families I've talked to. And I'm like, well, how many people in your community? And they're like, oh, about 10 or 15 on the Facebook group. I'm like, do you have a list? Do you have, do you have names, addresses, states, emails, Facebook profiles, genetic mutations? They're like, no, it's just 15. I'm like, no, no, no. Build that list, build that right now. That's your ghetto registry. And then when you get an IRB and a platform, then you're gonna have a real registry, right? But that is different than a natural history study. And I think it's important to distinguish. So step one, build a list, however you're doing it. Post-it notes, spreadsheets, whatever. Step two, get a proper IRB approved registry. Step three, recognize that most neurologists and doctors who are treating these kids have never heard of this disease. And most doctors are unlikely to listen to your Facebook posts or your blog posts, and they're going to want to see something in a publication. And a publication describing a disease is called a natural history study. So you're going to have to get to a natural history study, which is basically a formal publication by a scientist that says, here is what this disease looked like. Here's how it progresses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Seizures start here. They have infantile spasms. They don't have infantile spasms. 40% have epilepsy, 95% have it, whatever the numbers are. And so that is such an important document that most of us don't have. And people can found natural history studies and registries all the time. You need both. And I think it's funny that I'm talking about this because Nash is really the expert, but whatever. So I, I, my point here is plan on doing both, but start where you can and start with the ghetto, ghetto registry, as I call it, like the, the spreadsheet, and then find an IRB approved platform that is affordable and lets, lets you own the data. I'm surprised neither of us have said that yet. And then think about a natural history study, but don't get overwhelmed by, because if you Google natural history study, there's all kinds of crazy stuff and people, and if you, if you find a lawyer, they'll tell you like the 37 reasons why you can't do it. And, and lawyers are very good at saying no, no offense to the lawyers out there, but like really like you need all of these things. They're not impossible. There are people out there who can help you do it and, and start where you are to finish where I started. There's more patients than you realize as you do your work, as you build that digital lighthouse and you find more patients, you're very quickly going to get to the point where you can't keep everyone in your head. So write it down and that's your registry, but then know that where you're going is a proper natural history study. And a natural history study, to repeat myself, is where a doctor studies your disease. And this is the point I want to end on. The doctor's going to study your disease and the doctor's going to ask a very simple question. Are you sure you have this disease? Do you really have FOXG1? Do you really have Syngap1? Do you really have ABC123? Whatever the disease is. And the patient's going to say, yeah, 
And the doctor's going to say, okay, where's the paper that shows that? Where's your genetic report that confirms you have a genetic diagnosis? And you would be amazed at how many people even, I would say the number is about 10%. Because when we recruited people into our digital natural history study, one in 10 people who signed up, went through the process, said they had Syngap1, when we actually got their genetic report, did not have a confirmed genetic diagnosis. They had an uncertain diagnosis. And what that tells you is that people don't... completely understand some of this genetic diagnosis stuff and there's there's a whole other there's a whole other level of this but my point is like ask for genetic reports get the data make sure that people understand as they enter your communities because this is really new we're at the beginning of genetic disease in the grand scheme of things and so that's why a natural I'm I'm, get, I'm talking about too many things at once but that's why a digital natural that's why a natural history study is important and that's why it's important to write things down and make sure you you go back to patients and say, okay, you're sure you have this disease. You don't have a bus. You know, what's going on here? Nasha, you want to correct anything I just said? Because I feel like I just said five no, things. No, you're, you're on. And you know, um, an early mentor of mine who runs a biotech company said, if you do nothing else, if your foundation does absolutely nothing else and you only do one thing, create a natural history study. Because the one thing that biopharma cannot do is contact patients. They cannot do that, but you can as an advocacy group. So the the most important thing for an advocacy group is to understand the patients, to understand the community and to bring that knowledge back to patients. Very simple example, my daughter started having dystonia. I'd love to know, hey, other FOXG1 kids who have dystonia, what medications do they take? Which ones have been successful? Which ones have adverse effects? You know, a simple question like that should be able to be answered by the advocacy group. So just think about all this data you're collecting is going to help in the future to find treatments. It's also going to help today help guide your families on how to make better day-to-day care decisions. And it's something that industry cannot do, and it will make your advocacy group very valuable. So absolutely, the registry, the natural history study, first things that you want to focus on. Mm, Yeah, I remember you talking about that in the episode that we recorded, especially the point of you're allowed to contact your your patients in your advocacy group. No one else is. And yeah, you got to take care of that little baby and water it for sure. Okay, well, good job getting all that correct, Mike. I'm impressed. Nasha, what's the next step in figuring out the science and developing your path? All right. So now if you decide to be an advocacy group that is going to tackle science, the first thing you need to do is know where you're going. And I say this again and again, that strategy is execution. You have to know where you're going or you will go in many unnecessary directions. And what I mean by that is develop a path to a cure. You can go to our website. We have a path to a cure very clearly identified and laid out. If you would like an example, foxu1research.org. But and, and your path to a cure will, could be different, right? Depending on your disease and what the state of your disease is, your path to a cure will be different, but you need to have one. You need to know how do I get to treatments? So within trying to figure this out, the first thing that we did was search through all publications on PubMed, and we also asked asked um, some of our SAB members that had access to, you know, databases of publications to search for publications on FOXG1. And then what we did is we looked at who are the authors 
on each publication. And usually the first author and the last author tend to be the most important. But what we did is just we contacted these authors and said, hey, we'd love to have a call with you so you can explain this research to us. And, you know, what's the state of Fox G1? What do you know about it? And how would you think about developing a treatment? And that helped us get a good idea of like what is known right now within the science. So for Fox G1, we were really starting at the very, very beginning. There was very little known. So in our path to a cure, I knew that one of our first steps is going to be understand the biology. Do we have a loss of function in our mutations? Is it gain of function? Is it both? Are we a progressive disease? Are we degenerative disease? What, what is our disease? So understanding that biology is really important. And once I knew that we had to do more work there, then I knew, okay, we're going to have to fund scientists to do that work. The second part was we didn't have any assets. So some groups are lucky. You will already have mouse models and stem cell lines that are in you know labs that can be accessed. We didn't have that. So we had to start thinking about what are these core assets that really mimic the disease? So if you think about you know a patient, we're not going to be able to cut open a patient's brain or liver, et cetera, and test different medications and treatments, right? We have to make models of the disease. And so depending on your disease, and again, this is where your scientific advisory board gets very, very critical, you need to figure out what is the best model. It could be a rat, could be a pig, could be a firefly, could be a zebrafish, could be many different things, and you have to figure out what is going to be the best for your disease. You also want to start creating stem cells of your patients, where either through blood or through skin, you can create something called an induced pluripotent stem cell, which sounds really complicated, but it's a stem cell that then you could turn into different organs and again, test on. But all of that requires a lot of thought. It requires funding, and you have to find the right scientists to do that. A big part of this, you know, Mike talked about with the registry and natural history study, you need to make sure you own your data. When you think about core assets, you need to make sure they're in open labs like JAX or Coriel, these different types of labs that allow anyone, biopharma or academic researchers, to access these assets to test on. So if you think about the technologies that are coming down the pipeline, like gene therapy, you know, anti-sense therapies, all these different really cool things, you don't have to worry so much in investing in the actual technology because there's companies doing that. What you want to get to is, hey, company, I have models that you could easily test your technology on. And I have really good understanding, biological understanding of our disease with all these published papers that we funded. So you could feel confident that if your therapy works, that you, you would understand why it works. And we have scientists that you can tap into to learn more. So that's what you want to try to you know get in your head within your path to a cure of how are you going to do those things? How are you going to set that up? And then the last part of this path to a cure is proof of concepts. So as you're waiting for biotech companies to come and test on your assets, you can yourself do different proof of concepts to make it more exciting, to basically de-risk that investment for a biotech company. And what I mean by that is once you have your assets, for example, we have been funding um, you know, small proof of concepts for antisense. We've been funding a small proof of concept for a gene therapy. 
we have um, a zebrafish screen that we're going to be screening 10,000 FDA approved drugs. So those are the types of proof of concepts that you can start creating once you have these core assets set up. And that is all going to be on your path to a cure. But once again, I would not start just funding different things. And, you know, the first scientist you talk to gets you excited that they know how to find a cure for your child. You don't want to do that. You want to be really you know, thoughtful and have a method to your madness and know where you're going. So that's the next step. Strategies, execution, develop your scientific path to a cure. Nasha, I could listen to you talk all day about that. And I think you, I mean, you touched on so many important things, but especially a little bit there, you kind of talked about how keeping it open, right? And becoming partners with everyone instead of competitors. And then, yeah, not jumping into the first seat that opens and really being thoughtful about it. Really important to keep that in mind as you go along. Yeah. There's so many parents that I talk to that have met a scientist who's promised them the world, then they've raised money and just funded that scientist. And again, without this strategy, without your scientific advisory board that can really guide you, was that even the right approach to take? Did they even, you know, have a proposal that listed out the experiments properly and, you know, had like a control listed? I mean, there's a lot that goes into science and you want to make sure you're very thoughtful. Yeah. I mean, depending on the rare disease too, that could be just devastating. Absolutely. Mike, you're up. What's next? How do we even go from there? Wow. I mean, it's so fun to hear Nasha talk. I just, I just, I know. I just, She's so good. I'm just like, in, I'm in Nasha all right now. <laughs> I know. Oh my God. I love you guys. I'm going to have that angel music play before, totally. before totally. Nasha's part, you know, where they're like singing when you, the gates open. That's, that's going to be Nasha's intro. I'm going to acknowledge that Nasha's really smart. She's smarter than I am. So most people listening are probably like, wow, Nasha's smarter than I am. I don't think I could do that. And and I just want to say, I feel you. I'm right there with you. Every time I talk to Nasha, even though she's my friend, I get really intimidated. So if you're not as lightning fast as Nasha, how the hell do you do everything she just said? And I think the answer, one of the answers is, because I'm not as smart as Nasha, but the reason I've kind of been able to keep up a little bit, just a little bit, is I have reached out to people at biotechs and I've asked them a lot of questions. And what I find is on the spectrum of academics who want to do really cool science and it'd be nice if they cured a kid one day and parents who want their kids cured tomorrow, biotechs are a lot closer to parents because biotechs are companies. They need to make money. They need to get things done. And so what I find is that biotechs are much, much cleaner on the through path, right? They're much like, they're much more like, okay, how are we going to get this done? Like, is this going to result in an actual therapeutic? We're interested in a therapeutic we can put in a kid. They're interested in a therapeutic they can sell. Whatever, we're both interested in a therapeutic. And so I really like, and, and I have found the most insight and the best use of my time has been talking to really smart biz dev people at really smart biotechs. And I can think of two or three off the top of my head who I won't name because everybody would just call them. But, you know, figure out who you know. And when you meet a biz dev person at a small biotech, like, ask them lots of questions. They, those are really smart people in really good jobs. They're looking for an efficient solution. And I think it's super, super important. And it took me too long to figure this out, to connect with those people and to keep them on your speed dial. And you don't need to set up meetings. You don't need to send them long emails. You need to send them quick text messages. Hey, what do you think of this? And they'll write back and you're done. It can be so efficient. And so I think a lot of us in the rare disease space spend a lot of times cultivating relationships with academics. That's important. That's essential. But don't forget the biotechs. That's that's my that's my simple point here. And and I and I want to agree with absolutely everything Nasha said about the science. But I want to underscore one point that she made: open science. Do not give anyone a penny 
if that mouse, cell line, organoid, whatever you're funding will not be open access. And if they are not guaranteed that whatever they produce will be shared freely, not just shared freely, because what they can do is they can say, oh yeah, I'll share as soon as I publish or as soon as my bureaucratic lawyer friends down the hall sign an MTA agreement, which they can spend 12 months screwing up. No, no, no. They need to, within a time certain, deliver that out, that deliverable to a Jackson Lab or to a Coriel or to a somewhere where anyone can get their hands on it. If you're raising money from families of sick kids and you're paying for something to be done, if that something isn't ending up at the Jacks or Coriel or Combined Brain Biobank or wherever it's going, don't fund it. Period. End of thought. I, I'm, I'm very clear on this. I have made this mistake and I frankly, I regret it. Um, but back to biotechs. I think a laser focus on a, on a therapy is something that um, biotechs sort of phenotypically get. And, and if you're building a rare disease group, you should be looking at every biotech who's out there. If they're, if they're not working on your gene, the question you should ask is what genes are like mine? Am I a synaptic? Am I a transcription factor? Am I a something else? What genes are like mine? And if they're not working on my gene, are they working on those genes? Because, because for them, like you and I are, you know, Nasha loves FOXG1, Mike loves Syngap1. But but companies don't love, you know, Syngap1. They love neurohaploinsufficiencies or transcription factors or RAS pathways or mTOR, whatever they love. And so you got to figure out which family your gene is in and see how the company, which companies are interested in that class of genes and then go find those biotechs. Did I make sense? I don't, I don't know if that. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Find a bigger family if you have to. Yeah. Let all the heads that can get in the game. Leave it open for sure. And yeah, back to the biotech people, super personable and on the same level as parents in that you have a, you have a direct mission and they're some of the kindest, most fun people to actually talk to and work with because they're in it with you. So definitely don't be intimidated to connect with them and find them in lots of ways to even discover which one you want to talk to. Lots of them are on podcasts. So Google them and maybe, maybe they're in your podcast. Maybe they are. Maybe we should listen to all of your podcasts. Yeah. Everyone should go back and listen Absolutely. to every single <laughs> podcast except maybe one. It's so good. Okay. So basically, we're networking from point one to point 10 here. Who are we networking with next? Okay. Next, networking with other rare disease groups. And, um, you know, when I think about rare disease, like the families that have come out of this world for me. One is my Fox G1 family and I love them and you know the parents in it and we're all in this together. But the other family that was really unexpected for me is the family of other rare leaders. So like Mike, you know, Mike, I would consider one of my closest friends now. We're going through things that no one else can almost relate to. And I think when you think about where you are, it's really important to find other rare groups and other rare leaders who are kind of going through the same phase as you so you can go through those phases together and really help each other. And then also you want to look at rare leaders that are a few steps ahead of you who can give you guidance and can be your mentors. So, you know, I did that early on. I've got some really great mentors at other um, larger rare disease groups that have guided me. And then I've got folks like Mike, like Kim from Tess Research, a few others that I really look at. We're going through this together and, you know, step by step. And it gives you help and confidence, but also there's just people that you can talk to and can relate to. 
The other thing is that there are many, many conferences now and assets for you in the rare disease world. So Global Genes was a conference I went to right after my daughter was diagnosed. It completely saved me. I actually met one of our SAB members there who I just approached in the lobby. He'll always say he regrets going to that conference. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, it really kind of sets you and the more conferences you go to in the beginning, it will help shape you and you'll help, you know, you'll help network. It, it will be very good for you. And then there's, of course, lots of groups that you can join. You know, Mike and I are both part of Combined Brain. Again, depending on your disorder, there may be larger umbrella groups that you can join that could that could help you. I will also say, be careful though. There are, again, a lot of groups out there and you could end up spending a lot of time just networking. And so you have to be really efficient with your time as well and make sure that you're in groups that are really helping you meet your end goals. But yes, that's the other next step would be network with other rares in your community. Mm -hmm. Yep. I actually hear from most people that they've found their family outside of their disease specific group for a lot of the reasons you just mentioned and just making it a broader community, sharing your homework and just the fun of it all really super important. I'm so glad you said that, Effie. Just one thing, you know, when you said the fun of it all, in the beginning, I was so depressed about everything. And the thing is that this is your life. Like you are living your life every day and you've got to find a way to have fun with this. You just, you have to, or your life will be so depressing and that depressingness will come into your work and it will affect your family. It will affect the community. So you've got to try to have fun with this and look at it as a challenge, even though you're fighting for something that is, you know, could save your child's life. It's, an, it's something that you've got to figure out how to do. And the premature aging is real. So you got to got to yep. move. You got to move. So do you have to have a bunch of money? Like, how, what, what about those people who are like working two jobs and they have this rare disease kiddo and they want to do all this and they're smart and maybe they have a couple of the skill sets that are really valuable to do this. But what if there's no money? How do you even begin there? Because you hear the numbers, you hear millions of dollars here and millions of dollars there. And people have had a bake sale. How do you do it, Mike? Not with bake sales. <laughs> so, yes, you need money. Right, things take money. Scientists are people, they have families, they have jobs, they have bills, you, you know, they're gonna go where the money is. It's that simple. So if you're gonna do this, you're gonna need to raise money and running around being like, we don't have money is not the right answer. You know, when I saw Amber Freed is like my hero in this space, right? She's like, her kid was sick. She's like, I'm gonna raise $2 million. And I was like, that girl's bananas. She's not gonna raise two million. You know what she did? She raised $2 million. And so like, we're not all Amber Freed. We don't have that sort of amazing marketing ability but i think the genius of what amber did and i'm and frankly i'm about to copy her because i just got a really big proposal and i want to make it happen is you just got to go to the world and be like look this is what it takes people like we need to raise x point y million dollars this needs to happen and i would say my philosophy at the beginning was i have very strong feelings about money because before my kid was diagnosed i had a background in in philanthropy working as a donor and, and for big foundations and starting other charities and so i had strong feelings that people want to know where their money's going and overhead should be low and people should know what they're funding so basically what we would do is we would say this is the project it's going to cost x and we need to raise you know, X dollars to do it. And I'm glad I did that because I think we built trust. I think when you when you say to someone, my kid is sick and you need to help, they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. When you say to someone, my kid is sick, you need to help and I need I need, I need, need you to write me a $10,000 check. They're like, wait, 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 what? $10,000, what, what's this for? And you're like, well, no, my kid has this disease and we need to do this science to move it forward and that's why you need to write a $10,000 check. And then they pay attention. So you've done two things, right? Number one, you've helped them learn about the disease. Number two, if they're a family, you've given them hope that there's something to do, right? A lot of people 
get this diagnosis and they curl up in a ball and they cry. And, and, and they can cry for days, months, or years. So when you say to them, look, there's something we can do here, but we need to raise some money. It's counterintuitive, but you're actually inviting them into the idea that there's hope, that there's a way forward. So I would not be afraid of raising money. And I would not be afraid of going after big numbers. But And even if you don't have the money, you don't know who you know and who they know. And until you go to the world and say, we have a funding gap of a million dollars, and we need to get X, Y, and Z done. You're never gonna know who's sitting on $100,000. You are never gonna know who's gonna call you up. And I mean, literally, I've had this happen. You know, I was reading your blog and I couldn't handle it. And I called my dad and we have, this is my favorite term ever. We have a small family foundation and we're gonna send you a check for, pick a number, right? And it's like, holy smokes. And so, yes, the cold, hard truth. This costs money. You've got to raise the money and and someone's got to stand up and say to the world, we need to raise a million bucks by this time next year. And until you do that, it's not going to happen. If you never ask, it's never going to happen. You might fail, but that's not nearly as bad as you might have succeeded, but you never tried. I mean, there's a lot of mechanics on raising money. If you want like the short answer, set up a Stripe account, set up a Facebook giving thing, set up a Give Lively account start doing the stuff, get a free Salesforce account, like blah, blah, blah. That, that stuff's on a blog somewhere. But like the, the conceptual thing is much more important. You need to accept that you need to raise money and saying we don't have money is the wrong answer. Saying we are raising money and being positive and affirmative and just going for it. That's how this gets done. Mm. Well, and like you said, it's so important to actually have the plan of where the money's going. When you can give someone a dollar and know what they're doing with it, it makes you feel so much better about giving them that dollar and seeing your money work. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Mike says it the best, like being positive is so important. And the the way I try to explain it to people is like, look, you look at it as a portfolio of giving, right? One in 20 people will get a rare disease in their lifetime. And guess what? When that happens, there will not be treatment because only 5% of rare diseases have a treatment. So think about your philanthropy. And yes, it, it may make more sense to you to give to cancer, but potentially allocate some money for rare diseases, right? Pick one that you're excited about. And if you have a connection with someone, you can convince them that, hey, be excited about my rare disease. But as Mike said, you gotta just put that out there and go back and make sure you invigorate your patient community that, hey, it's all of our responsibility to raise money, right? If you think about it, if everyone raised $1,000, you'd get somewhere, right? So you you wanna start thinking big and, and getting everyone in, into that thinking. Mm, yeah, I love that. Invigorate your patient community. And yeah, letting people figure it out their own ways, whichever is going to be best, right? Maybe it's a GoFundMe for this person. Maybe it's making all of their friends and family donate on their birthday accounts. Maybe it's doing what Amber Freed does because she's so amazing. Go follow her and figure out how she's doing it. Just get creative and figure out what you're going to be good at. Okay, so... Then what, Nasha? We got a lot of money now. We've got our natural history study. <laughs> We've built a registry. We have so many friends in the industry. Oh my gosh. Yep. You're just, you're kicking it. So I have a very, I get the boring one about lawyers and legal stuff. And, you know, everyone hates this stuff, but unfortunately it's so important in this industry. Mike alluded to this 
you know, when you're setting up contracts, that contract is everything because so many groups have done contracts with academic centers and then find out that they can't touch the research or the research could get licensed to a biotech company that just shelves it. So how you write those contracts are really, really important. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer. Most of us won't be lawyers who go into this. If you are, you're very lucky. But getting your legal framework down is very important. And lawyers are very expensive, as you know. So, of course, the easy answer is try to find a pro bono lawyer if there's anyone in your community. But the other thing is just borrow from other rare groups. So when we started, I reached out to a few other larger rare groups and said, please send me your, you know, your sponsored research agreements. And I looked at all the agreements and then I, you know, tried to make sense of, and the first one we created made no sense because I basically like cut and paste from a bunch of different agreements and that was a disaster. <laughs> the lawyers um, were like, no, that's not how it works, Nasha. Yeah, that's not how it works. You don't just like, yeah, exactly. But we eventually got there and I will tell you that, you know, Effie, we should find a way, I don't know, on your site, if we can just attach it. I am so happy to share our sponsored research agreement publicly for anyone to use. And any contracts you need, just ask other rare groups. You can always ping me, I'm sure Mike, anyone else, and we will share that with you. And, you know, learn from others who have gone through this before you and don't enter into a legal agreement without making sure that you've got the contract that gives you ownership of what you are funding. Yeah, we can definitely make some downloadable PDFs for everyone to just have this all organized and all in one place. And that's that's an important part for everything that y'all have said right is copy each other's homework share it with all the other people who are on who are on the same crusade as you are because that's how everyone's doing it that are actually succeeding yeah anything else guys what's next yeah i'm so excited i feel like i could have just started one today right on yeah so i mean there's other, i'm sure there's other things we've forgotten to say but we've we've already covered a lot of ground and, and the, the last point i will make is just start I mean, it's really easy to sit here years into our journey and sound smart, but the truth is like I could talk for twice as long about all the stuff I did wrong and backwards. And you don't know that until you start. So you've just got to get going no matter how much you think you do or you don't have. Like that's why the lighthouse analogy is so good because if you've got to build a speedboat and get across the ocean, it's scary. And if the boat sinks, you're in trouble. But if you're just building a lighthouse, you're just sort of sitting there. And what I like about the lighthouse analogy is, first of all, it acknowledges that it's lonely, right? You're just sitting in the lighthouse, like keeping the light on. But second of all, people show up and they're not going to show up until you start. So if you've managed to listen to Mike and Nasha, and which is the hard part, and Effie, which is the easy part, for like 46 minutes, just you, you have the intestinal fortitude. Just go ahead and start this group, right? Go ahead and mop up all the, the social media hashtags everywhere and buy the URL. It's like 10 bucks a year and get a friend to design a, a starter website. Don't make the website perfect. Websites don't have to be perfect. Every website gets remade in two years. Don't waste time thinking about the web. Just, just start. And that's the point I would end on. Like just get going. We've given you a to-do list. There's stuff we haven't mentioned, but that's because that's not where you start, right? The stuff we've mentioned is where you start. Build your team, get your digital lighthouse built, start thinking about raising money, put it out there, be audacious and get to work because your kid is sick. And unless you, and if no one's done it, it's it's your turn. There'll be people out there like Effie and Nasha and, and others who are, who are there to help you along the way, but you, you, you got to take the first step. So that's that's my deep thought to end on. I would just just go for it. You know, Mike, I imagine you sitting on the beach at Half Moon Bay and that's where you came up with your lighthouse analogy. <laughs> I don't know where I got that, but it's it, it, it really it's really real to me because 
not because of those two thoughts, right? A, you got to get everyone together and B, it's really lonely. Like this work is lo- like no one is sitting there patting you on the back. It's not like an office job where you're like, hey, good job. You've got the whatever done. No, no, no. You're sitting there grinding away being like, no one cares. No one understands what I'm doing. This sucks. Why am I doing this with my life? And then one day someone calls you and they're like, oh my God, I've been watching your work for the past X whatevers and I want to help. And you're like, oh, they were paying attention. So it, it really is true to, to my lived experience. I don't know about you, Nasha. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there are times like me and, you know, my co-founder, Nicole, that we will. I remember days that we would be crying. Things didn't work out. We applied for grants that didn't come through. And then there's days where things start working and you're like, this is amazing. Like it's happening. And there's just nothing to be said about hard work and just putting your head down and breaking down the goals and just attacking, you know, every week, what can we do this week? What can we do the next week? It's just, it takes years to build something that can make a difference. But like you said, Mike, I mean, you're completely right. Just get started. That is the most important step. That's a whole other episode of what the day-to-day looks like and how it looks functionally and how much coffee goes into it and how much blood, sweat, and tears go into it and all of the things. But you're right. When you get that one moment that you've worked your tail off for, it just propels you and it opens up so many new doors. And you two are like my favorite example in the community. So I'm sorry if I've sent a million people your way, but you're the best. And I like how quick you are. I like how efficient you are. You've obviously learned a lot of lessons along the way, which you should probably share at some point. But I'm really grateful to you for sharing this with my audience. It's going to be a really valuable resource. And we should probably pick it up again sometime because there's there's just so much that you do that we can't cram into one episode. So eventually on your calendars, we're going to have to talk about this again. With pleasure. Effie, anytime. Yeah. And thank you for giving all of us an outlet to share this. It's amazing. All right. Cool. Thanks, guys. So happy. Can't wait to release it. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.